American Social History Podcasts are a production of the American Social History Project Center for Media and Learning at the City University of New York Graduate Center. Visit us online at ashp.cuny.edu. In part one of this podcast, Gregory Downs of City College of New York, CUNY, speaks to New York City teachers about the origins of slavery in the early American colonies and its subsequent expansion. This talk took place on December 4, 2008, at the Graduate Center. I appreciate you all having me here and uh, getting the opportunity to, uh, to talk to you um, about slavery um, and about some of the things that, uh, that, we're, that scholars are working on as they think through what slavery is and about some of the ways that this might be useful to you or interesting um, to you as you think about the ways that you teach in your classrooms. But the first thing that I want to say is that uh, talking, assessing slavery, talking about slavery, describing slavery, is, as people who wrote about it from the 1830s on, an impossible process. So that we're here to do something that is almost literal, that is literally impossible. And this was something that you see repeated over and over again. If you read the words that people, famous writers who toured, like Frederick Douglass, uh, writers who wrote at long after slavery about their memories of it, of which there were thousands of volumes, many of which are barely known but are easily accessible, that they would say it was almost impossible to sum up what slavery was. They would say there were aspects of slavery, some of which we'll talk about today, that people could relate to, but the fact that they could relate to it posed their own problems. Because on the one hand, slavery included these things that were relatable. Lots of you know, hard work and toil, which was not unusual in the 19th century. People digging ditches on the Erie Canal died in, the, in, the, in that construction. Um, the hard physical labor was, a, was something that many people could relate to. Breakup of families, physical violence, whipping, rapes, that slavery included these things that people, readers, could relate to. But then, as they wrote about these things, writers would pull back and say, even if, you think you can understand what slavery is. At some level, you can't, because it included not just those things, but also this condition that they said that no free person could fully understand, which was the condition of being not free, of being property. And even as they wrote this, other writers who had been slaves would say not only could free people not understand what slavery was, that it was impossible to sum it up for people who had never been slaves, but even other slaves couldn't really understand what slavery was. Harriet Jacobs famously wrote that male slaves, that the slavery for men was not the same as slavery for women, and that even male slaves who, read, who heard her and who read her could not understand the particular ways that being a female slave structured her experience. And so from the beginning, we approach this with a kind of humility, that there's an impossibility of recovering exactly what it meant to be a slave. And there's also a slipperiness, an, easing, an ease with which slavery can be not an actual condition of people who are property in a forced labor system that broke up their families, that you know, involved physical beatings, that involved rape, that involved all these other things. There's an ease with which this can be lost as a metaphor. And throughout the 19th century and even now, you see people compare things to slavery that involve some aspect of what slavery was, but that don't involve this totality. And so part of what I want to start with is that sense of humility, that describing slavery becomes an impossible task, um, both because it was this wide, huge system and because it involved this fundamental difference of what it meant to be property, an almost unimaginable thing. 
as former slaves toured the United States, toured England trying to describe it, it's posed a problem for more than 150 years. How do we define what slavery was? Recently, this problem has gotten more and more complex because as we look back to see what slavery was, we find also that its size, its duration, its vastness, the fact that it changed and took so many different forms also makes it difficult for us to really sum up what slavery was. That when you think about slavery, most Americans have an image of, you know, that's set by popular culture of sort of a cotton plantation of vast hundreds of slaves, of slave owners, you know, up in their, you know, second floor study occasionally looking out. And it turns out that this is, A, describes only one small moment in American slavery, and B, even then describes an unusual condition. That slavery was something that was always changing that was always in the midst of being changed by economic forces, political forces, social forces. And that when we think about the scale and the size of it, helps us understand why it's so hard to sum up. By 1860, there were more than 4 million slaves in the United States. We can see that from the beginning, summing up an institution that affected 4 million people, almost impossible. And then when we think about what some of those slaves did, you go from everything, from people who are slaves to individual families in high mountains, you know, working alongside them in the fields, working alongside their owners in the fields, to people who are working on this sort of more common image of the cotton plantation, to people working in actual factories in places like Richmond, Virginia, where factories set up upon northern models of heavy industry, but staffed by slavery, this experiment in industrial slavery, to smith shops, and working in jobs as, as wide-ranging as sugar pressers, sailors, Although it seems counterintuitive to us, sailing was actually sailing was actually in many ways coded a slave profession, um, and that much of the waterways of the South were operated by slaves, as in fact a good deal earlier of the harbor in New York City had been operated by slaves. Um, carriage drivers, foremen, that it challenges our ability to summarize and to say this is what a slave is, this is what slavery is, because it was many things at once. It was at once this condition of not being free, and then it was also a thousand or even ten thousand different ways of experiencing that condition of unfreedom. But despite this impossibility, for more than 150 years, first former slaves and white travelers and, and abolitionists, and then scholars have been trying this impossible project, trying to explain what ex-slave Peter Randolph wrote was the key problem, what American slavery is. And what slavery was, trying to explain that as a way to awaken people in the North to the problem of slavery, to awaken slaveholders in the South to the sin of slavery, and to awaken, as most famously Frederick Douglass, but also dozens and then eventually even hundreds of other lecturers did, a nation to the problem of slavery, of what slavery was. At the same time, as they, as they tried to portray it, this has always done multiple work that it's always been aimed at the same time to show what it was, what the condition was of life of slavery, and also to articulate how it was possible to live as a human being within slavery, what kind of system slavery was, what the goals of slave owners were, how this system could seem to control your life, and yet also at the same time how it is that slaves found ways to carve out their own individual moments of autonomy. And even more so, what I'm going to talk about today, which is how they were able to find moments where they could carve out social spaces, where they could build some notion of finding a human element in slavery through the construction of some forms of communities. So that at the same time, we have to be conscious as we look at slavery of both things. The power that slavery had, a legal power, a physical power, a military power, 
and also the capacity, the fact that it never had complete power over individual slaves. That there were these moments of capacity for individual resistance and for some kind of social resistance. Now before we jump in, so in this talk, what I'm going to do is to give you quickly a sort of outline of how slavery came to be. Some sort of basic you know, facts about what different stages of American slavery. And then in the heart of the talk, talk to you about how within that world, American slaves worked to build communities, not a single community, not something that sprung up from, you know, from, you know, from out of the ground or that sprung out of a shell, but build and made communities, associations through things like religion and family that you talked about, through political networks, through communities of shared experience that they could use to try to redefine or partly redefine slavery upon their own terms. And the ways that their efforts to do that changed slavery, not just for them, but also created sets of problems that would change slavery for their masters. But first, let's take a step back and sort of just quickly talk a little bit about what slavery is. That while we're going to focus here upon the development of what slavery was in the United States, which is a mostly 17th, 18th, 19th century system of large-scale agricultural labor, that slavery had a long history. In fact, a history that seems to be longer than history itself, the date back before we have written record. That almost, that across the world, in almost every society, had practiced some form or another of slavery, usually to resolve a central question, which is that in a war, what did you do with prisoners? One answer was to kill them. But this posed not only, you know, perhaps ethical problems, but more to the point, practical problems. That it didn't do you that much good to kill prisoners in the long run. And so were there other ways of incorporating them into your society that recognized them as dishonored, as weak, as not equal, but also allowed you to use them in some way? And slavery emerged around the world as a way of one way of resolving this problem, of the seeming social death of a slave that instead of actually dying, they would die as a, as a free-functioning, autonomous individual person and be remade into a slave. Now, this could take all kinds of forms, forms that seem peculiar or bizarre to us and to, to Americans versed in an American form of slavery. But among the people who had been slaves throughout human history include people like Abram Hannibal, who became the highest-ranking general in Imperial Russia under Peter the Great, the Greek poet Aesop, many saints, more than one pope, Ibrahim Pasha, who was the Grand Vizier of the Ottoman Empire, John Smith, who founded the English colony at Jamestown, Virginia, Miguel de Cervantes, author of Don Quixote, as well as many, many others, people who were slaves and yet did not experience slavery in the way that we see it in American context as part of an agricultural life at a plantation. And in fact, the Ottoman Empire particularly valued slaves as leading counselors because the belief was that if you appointed someone from a leading family to be your grand minister, well, they might try and, and muscle you out. And that a slave had particular benefits as the lead minister of the Ottoman Empire because they could not, in the end, be a challenge to the sultan's authority. So slavery had taken is something that can be malleable, that's plastic, that can be used that can be used in many different ways. And the form that it took in the United States was not the only form that it could. But starting in the 15th, 16th century, starting to really the 16th and 17th century, and flourishing in the United States in the 1700s and 1800s, we get a particular kind of slavery in the Western Hemisphere, in North and South America. One that is heavily dependent upon agriculture and mining, large scale that, that exists for labor exploitation, and that involves this transportation 
of approximately 11 million Africans from Africa into some part of the north and south of the Western Hemisphere. And that became a profitable enterprise for British, French, Spanish, Portuguese, eventually after independence, the United States, through involvement in these crops that would be that would be incredible money makers. Sugar, tobacco, cotton, coffee, indigo, rice, along with in some places mining, and in some places with experimentations in, in industry and in factories. Now this hemispheric slavery came to the United States in a couple of different ways. And one of the ways was just as part of this of this hemispheric system. The slavery came to South Carolina, which would be one of the centers of American slavery, in large part just as an easy transportation for Barbados. Barbados at the time was the most valuable real estate in the world in this era of sugar plantations. And so they're producing this incredible amount of sugar that's making this incredible amount of money for the British crown, and they're not able to feed the slaves there. South Carolina develops as a, as a rice plantation in large part to feed Barbados. And so we see slavery moving easily from the Caribbean into the what would become the United States in that matter. But there's another place where slavery entered in that in many ways people take as more representative of how slavery entered the United States and the kind of problems that it posed. And that was Virginia. And of course, Virginia matters in the United States for all kinds of reasons, but not the least of which is that many of the leading figures in the American Revolution, these apostles of freedom, came from this plantation belt, where slave owners, tobacco slave owners, tobacco plantation owners in Virginia, Washington, Jefferson, Madison, Monroe, and that this one, essentially one major river tributary produced these people who would not only be leaders in the revolution and in the nation, were also part of this extraordinarily powerful slave society. <clears throat> now, how does slavery come to Virginia? And there we get a moment where we see different possibilities arise, that the slavery that exists in the United States becomes not the only slavery that was possible. In the early days, unlike South Carolina, Virginia was settled largely by whites. It was set quickly determined that tobacco would be the profitable crop for Virginia. But the English, but the English settlers looked for white labor as the people who would actually work the tobacco plantations. Now, how did they get it? They brought in apprentices. So they would pay if uh, you know someone showed up in the harbors or in a city in England, they said, you want to go over to Virginia. If you work four to seven years, we'll pay for your transportation. And at the end of this time, We'll work you for four to seven years. You'll be this apprentice, not quite free, but not fully a slave, not for life. And at the end of it, we'll give you 100 acres, and, and we'll give you some cash money, and you'll go on your way. <clears throat> there were also people who wanted to set up Virginia upon slave labor, but by enslaving natives. But this became a practical impossibility because they knew the land better than the Virginians did, and they just slipped away. So for the first decades, Virginia tobacco plantations ran largely with English labor. Now, why was this? Part of the reason was that slaves were expensive. It cost twice as much to buy a slave as to have an apprentice come over, as to have this, this forced English labor come over. And there was another part of the economic equation, which is that people died. Now, here we sort of talk in, you know, the sort of extremely, you know, the sort of idea that life, you know, in a sort of pre-modern age, nasty, brutish, and short. Uh, you know, this was... Hardly true in Virginia. Uh, roughly at least four to seven years that one would work before getting the land grant or the money paid off. Um, at one point, some of the averages are that 
maybe eight to ten percent of these people who came over from England lived that long. So practically, it made no sense to pay more for a slave to own them for life if both slaves and white Englishmen were going to be dead within four to seven years anyway. If 90% of the people you bring over are going to be dead, then of course you get the cheapest people and you don't worry about whether you own them in perpetuity. And so this functioned, although there were some Africans into, brought into Virginia as early as 1619, the other interesting thing is that it seems it's very difficult to reconstruct. There are huge things that we don't know. There are years where we don't even know who was governor of Virginia, really basic things. So the claim that we know everything about the lives of these people working on the plantations would be a falsehood, would be a lie. But it seems that of these early shipments of Africans brought to Virginia, that many of them essentially were not treated as distinct from the white Englishmen. <coughs> that many of them were apprentices, that they could you know, work their time off, they were indentured servants rather than lifetime slaves. They intermarried, and they lived alongside these white English indentured servants without that much comment. Now, we know, and there were people who believed this is the way it's always going to be in Virginia. There may be some Africans around. Some of them may be slaves. Some of them may be indentured servants who find their own, who, you know, get the, gain their own freedom after four to seven years. And Virginia is going to become wealthy off of tobacco. Well, the last part happens. Virginia does become wealthy off of tobacco. By 1700, exporting 35 million pounds of tobacco a year to Europe. So you can imagine that's a lot of cigarettes, a lot of snuff that's being dipped, and producing an incredible amount of money. The King of England at one point was making 400,000 pounds a year off of taxes from Virginia alone. And that's in $1,700. So that actually is real money. Even by Wall Street terms, that's real money. At one point, Virginia alone was something like 40% of the king's wealth. That if you're a king and you're trying to figure out how do I make it through without having to get parliament, you know, the British version of Congress, to pass more money for you, which of course they don't want to do. Well, this became this incredible bonanza. So that part of it turned out. It plays an area that became incredibly wealthy out of tobacco. But the idea that this tobacco would be farmed, largely or partly, by white laborers, slipped away. Why did it? Well, there's two things that seem likely as explanations. Again, there's things that we don't know. But that would have significant impact for the way slavery would develop in the United States. And one was that the de demographics changed. I told you before 90% of these indentured servants were dying in four to seven years. Around 1650 to 1660, that stops. Our ability to understand medicine and disease in the 1650s is extremely limited. But it seems that people built up resistance to malaria, the other forms of fevers. It also seems that there were some incredibly crude and basic efforts at hygiene, disposing of waste, and that this made a big difference. People started living longer. Now this seems good, right? We're for living longer. But this posed a real problem to these tobacco planters, because now, instead of 90% of their workers dying within four to seven years, they're living. And at the end of it, they've got to give them 100 acres and pay them, so it's costing them money. And the economics of buy a slave or bring over an indentured servant starts to flip. At the same time, giving them 100 acres is not only expensive, but it poses a real problem, which is that tobacco, while we can easily sort of fall into these narratives that assume that the English, as they settled, defeated the natives quickly and established power. In fact, it was much more tenuous. And many tobacco planters had made treaties and deals 
with native tribes where they said, leave us alone in our tobacco plantations on the river and we'll keep these unruly people, these English workers, these African slaves and African servants from coming up into the woods where you live. Well, eventually they ran out of land. And so, as these white workers said, I want my hundred acres and I want it up there, then it posed a problem for these planters who wanted to say, look, We've got a deal. They're not attacking us, and we're not, you know, infringing upon them. But where's the land going to come from? At the same time that these sort of basic economic and political challenges were happening, something else happened that very related to this, which is in 1676, so 100 years before the Revolution, Virginia had its own little civil war called Bacon's Rebellion. And this Bacon's Rebellion posed a lot of questions to slave owners who thought that they had a, they had a, to plantation owners who thought they had a workable system here. Because what happened there is one of these wealthy plantation owners, one of these uh, sort of persons of this upper class uh, from a high British family comes over, finds himself Nathaniel Bacon, frustrated that he can't exert power in the colony, starts asking around, you know, figuring out what are the discontents. And the primary discontent that he finds is uh, these White former princes, white former servants who want that land up in the woods. The land that the planters have set belongs to the natives. And so he organizes this as a, as a political platform against the protected and nourished Indians. I mean, so this idea that he's trying to organize these agricultural laborers against the planters on the ground that the planters have cut a deal with the natives. He quickly realizes that he can not only enlist the help of these indentured servants, but also of slaves, of Africans, some of whom at this point are slaves, some of whom are still in this in-between category, and launches an attack to, upon the governor. After a series of battles, he loses, and at the end you get a final group of a hundred of, uh, of his supporters who are left who refuse to surrender when others do. And of those supporters, 80 of them are Africans. So clearly he, had, he gained some support and was able to bridge some of these gaps that we might presume had existed between white English indentured servants and Africans who are some mix of slaves and servants. Well, this scared the you-know-what out of the planners. They looked around and said, this is not good, because there's not that many, you know, the whole point of being a planter was to own this huge plantation, which meant there weren't that many planters, and there were an increasingly large number of people out there who could be a threat to them. And so among the ways that they looked to resolve this problem <coughs> was to cut back on what they saw as the most troublesome people, which is these servants from England. If they come over, they want land, they start trouble, and that's not worth it. And so on the one hand, you see this cutoff of English servants brought over to work on the tobacco plantations. On the other end, an increase, dramatic increase, in the number of Africans brought into Virginia to work on these tobacco plantations. And at the same time, they say the other thing that posed a problem here was that we had two different classes underneath us who were able to ally. That we had these white English farm workers and these Africans, and they got together, and that's what really caused instability. So they figure out, how do we divide them? And this is where you see the real start in Virginia of these laws that really separate out to say that Africans are treated one way, and whites, even the poor whites, are treated a different way. Some of these things seem to us 
to be sort of hard to picture. One of the rights or privileges of being a white English worker in Virginia after Bacon's Rebellion was that if you were whipped, you had to, they had to keep your clothes on. Now, that didn't mean you couldn't be whipped, right? It's important to keep in context uh, how this operates. But that Africans were routinely whipped by being stripped naked, which not only meant that it was more painful, but also meant that it was humiliating, right? It was a way of showing who was lower in class. The laws against intermarriage, it's easy to look back and to assume that if there were laws against intermarriage um, in the 1800s and the 1900s, that they must have been in place before then. And yet, it turns out that intermarriage was not that unusual in the 1600s in Virginia and Maryland. So these laws to say they can't marry. And then a practice at which, what did that actually mean? That while there were laws against fornication of many different types, in practical terms, what it meant was that white men were never prosecuted for having sex with women, with African women. But African men were prosecuted for having sex with white women. And so this buildup of this sort of American association that not only was slavery an agricultural system, but it was an agricultural system that was going to be based upon race, and that was also going to be based upon uh, this division, this effort to create a division between African slaves and the poorer whites in the area. And this would have enormous consequences for the development, not only of slavery, but also of what would have the development of the country. Because this region, this compromise around the tobacco plantations, produces, as I said, these people who would be at the heart of what some call this American paradox of slavery and freedom, of champions of, of freedom, Washington, Jefferson, Madison, Monroe, who were also <laughs> practitioners of slavery and arose out of the slave system. And so out of this profit and out of this paranoia, we get the development of American slavery and in many ways the development of an American nation. And that while it would take different forms in different parts of the country over different times, its basic parameter was set. And what is it that this slavery produced? Well, if you look at your handout, that you get a sense of some of the basics of it. That it produced a slave society in the United States that was different than most other places. That for one thing, it produced a slave society in which people reproduced. It's easy to take this for granted. What else are they going to do? This seems like you know, sort of common, you know, people have children. The see, you know, has been going on literally since the dawn of time, or else there would be no dawn of time, right? <laughs> and yet, strikingly, when you look at other slave societies in North and South America, that owners brought in, mostly men, worked them to quick deaths, and when they died, brought in more men. And so you get slave societies that are overwhelmingly male, and in which there's this constant diminishment of the slave population. The United States has a different experiences it differently. That in the United States, a slave population of about seven hundred thousand uh, in eighteen hundred grows over four million by eighteen sixty. Even though, starting in eighteen oh eight, the federal government bans the importation of new slaves, so the population increases almost six times in the seventy years in which few, some slaves are still snuck in or get in through Louisiana or other places but in which largely it comes through, quote, unquote, natural reproduction. And this makes for a different world of slavery in the United States than almost anywhere else. That by the time of the Civil War, the vast majority of slaves had been born in the United States, had been from the day of birth speaking English, and in religious practices, as we'll talk about, had been incorporated into American religious practices to some degree in ways that were highly unusual in the rest of the hemisphere. 
um, that when we talk about a creolized population, a population in which people have been born and raised in, a, in, in the United States, we also see a slavery that's largely Southern. If you look at this handout, you'll see that at the same time you get these dramatic increases in slaves, and at the same time you can see here very sort of quickly how many slaves are since the Caribbean and Brazil versus there are various estimates, but most of them now have settled in between 400 to 500,000 to the United States. Um, so a relatively small chunk of the slave population grows into a relatively large chunk of Africans in the, in the Western Hemisphere. We also, and you can see quickly this difference in mortality if you look at Virginia and Jamaica, where in Virginia 100,000 people had grown to a population of 300,000, while in Jamaica 800,000 had grown to a population of 350,000. We also see that slavery becomes a southern phenomenon. Now this wasn't always true. In the beginning, almost every colony had some slaves and permitted slavery. But you see that states like Connecticut, New York, New Jersey, Pennsylvania, which have slavery around the time of the Revolution, the numbers quickly diminish. And the reason why the numbers quickly diminish are twofold. For one thing, the slavery was not that profitable in the North. The kinds of agriculture you do didn't make it profitable. For another, that Northern states start outlawing slavery. And new states that are brought in after the Revolution are brought in with constitutions that eliminate slavery from the beginning. So that by the time of the Civil War, New Jersey has a few slaves who have not been freed under a very gradual Emancipation Act. Um, a few, you know, a couple of dozen older slaves. But most of the rest of the North, slavery which had existed, and New York City, which had at one point been a center of slavery and of slave transportation, have faded. At the other hand, what you also see is that slavery gets concentrated into particular belts. Especially after 1800, when you get the development of the cotton gin, which made it profitable to grow cotton across large chunks of the South that you hadn't been able to, you get what become these cotton belts. And the darker it is, the higher the proportion of, of slaves um, in 1840. And you get what becomes called the Black Belt along the Mississippi River, the Natchez region, um, the Tobacco Belt, um, South Carolina, and then a large belt that curves up through Kentucky, Tennessee, Alabama, and Georgia. At the same time as slavery is spreading from these small belts along Virginia and South Carolina into the interior, we also see the problem of slavery and the effort to control and to discipline slaves becoming front and center. And so that in the Constitution, what's going to be about, what's going to happen to slavery, and how are southern slave owners going to make sure that if their slaves run to these now free states in the north, that they're going to be returned, is a central problem of American politics. And in southern states, you see this greater and greater development of slave codes meant to say what slaves can and can't do, and the development of these systems of whipping and discipline and punishment to prevent them and, and patrols to keep them from running. And so when we study the legal condition of slavery, or the patterns of whipping and punishment, we end up emphasizing the success of slavery, the way that slavery endured, the ways that slave owners were able to get what they wanted. On the other hand, what we also see when we look at slavery are the limits of that. That this is only one aspect of slavery. And that part of what we see as we look at how hard the owners had to work by the 1800s to keep slavery together, we see the kinds of efforts that slaves were making to carve out their own space within it, and the partial, limited but partial and meaningful success within that. That if, at the one hand, slavery was an effort, the efforts of slave owners were an effort 
to make people into property. Then in that sense, by behaving as people, slaves worked against that and made that more difficult and raised this fundamental contradiction in American society of how could a system treat people like property once people became more and more aware that they were not merely property but behaved and acted like people. Now this resistance could take all kinds of forms, one of which was the form of family. Some of you have taught, and I heard you talk about family formation as you saw it um, in the weddings and so on. That over and over, as slaves described what it was that kept this effort to make slavery a political system, a demographic system, an agricultural system, a legal system that transformed them from, property, from people into property, when slaves explained why it is that they never believed that or surrendered to that or gave in to this notion of what they were, that family served at the heart of their explanation of how that worked. Harriet Jacobs, um, writing in, in New York right before the Civil War, wrote that, as a child, my family lived together in a comfortable home. And though we were all slaves, I was so fondly shielded that I never dreamed I was a piece of merchandise. That these forms of family formation could be one way of protection. Another way of protection could be social associations, making up groups based upon political beliefs or discussion. Henry Clay Bruce, who we'll talk a little bit more about, said slaves would listen carefully to what their owners say, while talking to each other, and then as soon as the opportunity would permit, would go to the quarters, or to the woods, or to these meetings, and convey it. That in this act of conveying information, a building of a community that said, we're not merely property, but we have these connections, these human elements. Or through faith, which we'll also talk about. That these meetings, the importance of this religious dimension, to create not only the community of who's there, but also the explanation of why it was that in the eyes of, some, of a faith, that one was not property but a person. And so together, these elements and others would give us access, partial access, to the way that slaves made meaning of their lives, the process of making meaning, and the ways that meaning created openings within slavery. So part of it, let's start with faith. Now the history of Christianity and slavery is a complicated one. One of the things that scholars have only recently discovered is that a great deal of slave, number of slaves who were brought to the New World were actually Catholic and Muslim. That while a great deal of what used to be said was talked about this sort of breakdown of traditional African um, religious practices um, in the New World, then it turns out that as they looked more carefully at where slavery was taking place, that both Portuguese missionaries and Arab Muslim missionaries had succeeded in converting a great number of slaves who were brought to the New World. And so this process of religious change was something that had been, on, had been going on even before the Middle Passage. On the other hand, what, what we've become much more attuned to is the idea that there was a single set of African practices of religion has broken down. As we looked at these incredible differences between different religious practices in parts of Africa, and so that what became has become more and more apparent is that in making whatever syncretism, whatever sort of merging together of different practices in the new world, in doing that, that slaves had to really could not rely upon a common set of ideas among slaves. This idea of a community of faith was not something that just happened or pre-existed. That arriving in the new world, many of them spoke different languages that they couldn't, you know, could not understand each other. They had different sets of practices. 
and that they had to develop, make something in the new world that they could use to build up these connections. And so this process took a great deal of time. Different estimates, some people estimate that in the 1800s, maybe by the, in the early 1800s, how many slaves had been baptized in any way? Very hard to say. Some estimates, maybe only as many as 5 to 10%. By the Civil War, the estimate is somewhere between 30 to 40%. Now, does the fact that baptism, some people were probably baptized and didn't believe, there may have been people who believed and didn't, we can't really know for sure. But we do see the slow growth of an African-American, Protestant, mostly Protestant, except in Louisiana and parts of South Carolina, Christianity, especially after 1800, as a wave of religious revival swept through the South, and then at these huge, enormously vast, 100,000 people, pre-amplification, people turning out at camp meetings, where both whites and African-Americans are there being converted or being baptized at the same time. At the same time, some slave owners began in the 1800s to work to convert and to build up plantation churches as a way of social control. And many slaves make this difference when they talk about what the master's minister said. Be obedient, you know, obey your master, servant, you know, be a servant, be humiliated, be humble, worry about the afterlife, don't worry about this life. And the kinds of forms of experiences of Christianity that they had in these more secret meetings, these meetings in between plantations. And at those meetings, a, a preacher named William Robinson, who wrote after slavery, said, talked about the ways that they would happen. He would say, in order to notify the slaves on other farms, when there's going to be a meeting, they would sing the song, and the slaves would understood what it meant. So they have to communicate, but they have to communicate in a way that doesn't give away too much. And you can see what a problem this poses, and also the ways that people find solutions to it. So you can get you ready, there's a meeting here tonight, and if asked about it, they would say, oh, no, 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 that's just a hymn. You know, that's just, I'm just repeating, you know, this thing you taught us. Then they would carry with them lamps with a greasy rag for a whip, for a wick, and they would attach a sharp spike to the lamp so as to stick it in the tree. And this way they would light up the swamp while they held their meeting. Or Emma Lada, another slave minister, said, I remember we had these secret prayer meetings and prayed to be delivered from slavery. This way that an African-American Christianity, unlike the Christianity that they were getting in the master's churches, preached these levels of freedom and deliverance. And I remember I asked father and mother why they were hollering so loud about and they said they were praying to God to deliver them from slavery. And that within this African-American Christianity, we see some things that are to a great deal in common with other forms of Southern religious experience. It tends to be more emotional, tends to be less structured, tends to be less ritual than Northern, than Northern or Church of England Episcopalian Christianity. But some things that are clearly particular to the way the slaves are practicing it an emphasis upon conversion, an emphasis upon heaven, and a dramatic decrease in an emphasis upon hell. When asked about it, slave preachers would say, if you're a slave, what do you need to be told about hell for? Right? They didn't need hell to teach them you know, the ways of understanding the world, that slavery existed in this sense as a kind of hell. And also a set of parallels of people making comparisons between themselves and especially of the ancient Israelites, and of Moses leading the Israelites from slavery in Egypt into freedom. And this sort of constant use of this as a way of reminding themselves both of this capacity, of the righteousness of freedom, of the fact that people could be slaves and yet still be worthy of being free, and of this long-term historical capacity for deliverance. Now there were ironies about resisting through faith, just as we'll see, there are ironies about other forms of resistance. On the one hand, 
in making life tolerable. Sleaze carved out separate psychological and spiritual worlds for themselves that were distinct from their owners. And so they saw themselves as worthy and good. And yet at the same time, as Frederick Douglass and many other ex-slaves would say, this practice of an emphasis upon an afterlife, upon eventual deliverance, led some of them to question whether this practice of religious practice had undermined the capacity for violent or immediate actions to overthrow slavery. Whether or not it bred a sort of long-term, uh, you know, a sort of such a focus on long-term deliverance that it undermined immediate resistance. And this would be a debate that would go on within slave communities, and that would go on long after slavery, of immediatism versus gradualism, of whether Christianity brought people together or whether it became a way of coercion or control. Another way that we see slavery, forms of resistance, is through family formation. Now this is also something about which we know quite a bit, but huge gaps in knowledge. And a basic question that had emerged was, did families that were made in slavery stay together? But there were enormous pressures upon family formation within slavery. The most obvious was that husbands and wives could be sold off, the children could be sold from their parents, and so that this lack of, you know, separate from the strains that other that families face for all kinds of other reasons, there were these basic practical strains. And that during the Civil War, we'd see this sort of large discussion among Northerners of slaves don't know how to make families. They don't have to keep them together. It has to be, you know, something that's taught to them. As we look back, then we see these aspects that sort of help us to separate out the role of slavery and breaking up families versus what happened in families that did stay together, even with the strain. And so from one record of 1866 of marriage, so right after the end of slavery, of roughly 3,000 marriages, about 400 of them had stayed together, had been, had been unbroken. On the other hand, as you start to look out, what broke them up? By master, meaning one had been sold away from the other, um, by death, or by the war itself. And so that once we sort of reconfigure the numbers into people who have the capacity to keep to choose, some element of capacity to choose, that even with the ways that slavery and the war had put pressures upon marriages, that still a majority of marriages that could be kept together were kept together. Even taking into account that sometimes people did not have the, you know, sometimes people were married off by their masters or didn't have, you know, the sort of capacity to choose their mates the ways that others did. And so Thinking through things like this helped scholars get a much better sense of how to make sense of the priority or the emphasis upon family and the way that slaves talked about their life. That there were this capacity to keep together some families despite this enormous pressure. One of the things that made the pressure so intense was that as slavery was, as we get into the 19th century, we see an incredible shift in slavery that's often missed, but that played a huge role in breaking families apart which is the growth of what's called the Southwest. Now, you're going to think I flunked geography because you're going to look at Alabama and say, that's the Southeast, that's not the Southwest. But in the context of the 1800s, Alabama, Mississippi, Texas were the far west. They had, many of them had not been parts of the United States at the founding. Many are brought in by the Louisiana Purchase and some uh, you know, treaties with Native Americans in the, uh, and wars against Native Americans in the early 1800s. And in what scholars call the second middle passage, about a million slaves are transported from Virginia between 1800 and 1860, from Virginia and South Carolina, Georgia, North Carolina, to these states of the Old South, uh, the states of what was the Southwest. So an enormous, an enormous upheaval and dislocation. 
that it's easy to lose track of because of the, but that in some ways had as powerful effect upon slave worlds as the first middle passage to the United States. So a million people transported from this eastern seaboard into the southwest. And an enormous number of those, from people, you know, people who were of age, where they had families and children, and were sold downriver, which in many respects meant down the Ohio River, if you were in Kentucky or Tennessee, into the Mississippi, and sold into places like Louisiana and Texas, where someone in Virginia would never have access or even word from them. And so this has an enormous effect upon slave life, as well as an enormous effect upon the United States, that these eastern seaboards, the proportion of slaves drops, as tobacco gets less valuable, and as they burn up their land, that because they tended not to do crop rotation, that these old plantations get less and less profitable. But the expansion of cotton into the Southwest means not only an increase in slave population, um, but also this increase in the power of cotton, that the United States goes from being primarily slaves focused around sugar, rice, tobacco, to being primarily focused around cotton. And this really happens later in the 1800s. After it really happens after 1800. And so this would have enormous impact upon the capacity to keep families together. And yet throughout it, we see this discussion not only of family formation and settlement, but also of the ways in which the difficulties of keeping families together becomes part of how they prove that families matter. That in this double way, that the harder slave owners work to make it difficult to build up families, the more that they would attribute meaning and value to them. So that in the process of running across, of running to other plantations, that Georgia ex-slave Marshall Butler remembers being whipped upon going to see his girlfriend on a neighboring plantation. And he said, well, we knew it. It was worth being paddled. And that was why they liked us, because they knew that we cared enough about them to be worth being paddled to go over. And sure, we'd get whipped. But what would we do the next day? We'd go back, because it was worth it. But in this interesting way, the difficulty and the pain of it became inscribed upon the meaning that was made of it. We also see an enormous efforts in these narratives of this discussion of the enormous efforts of fathers. It tended to be that slave children were kept with their mothers. Many slave marriages were cross-plantation, were from neighboring plantations. And so these descriptions of the father's efforts to cross to find their children. And so Samuel Bulwer remembered that his father lived two miles away. And they said, he said, if they caught my father without a pass, he was sure in for a skin-cracking whipping. And he knew that, but he would come to see us anyway, whipping or not. Or Charles Ball, one of the most sensitive of slavery writers, would say, poor as the slave is, and dependent at all times upon the arbitrary will of his master, or yet more fickle caprice of the overseer, his children look up to him in his little cabin as their protector and their supporter, and that in this way, this sort of family reconstruction was able to work to sort of provide this counterweight to the notion of not people but property, and to reinscribe these personal relationships. And yet also at the same time, this sort of notion of a domestic family, of a sort of nuclear family, of husband, wife, you know, 2.5 children, was increasingly difficult to maintain as slave, more and more slaves were sold to hundreds and even thousands of miles away. And so we also see the development within slave communities of what we call fictive kinship, of a kinship of a family that's made not by blood or by marriage, but of a practice of adopting uncles of adopting cousins, of these family practices that are meant to say, if, somebody, if your uncles are sold away, then find a new uncle. Uh, it doesn't mean that these sellaways didn't have effect or didn't cause pain, but became these ways that people would find a, a spot for family formation, um, for complex family formation, 
um, for you know, family formation that extended into dozens or even hundreds of people in the midst of this. At the same time, this also posed an irony, and that reminds us of the ways these forms of resistance could also end up being tied to or even supporting the power of slavery. That as Frederick Douglass, William Wells Brown, many slave writers pointed out, Harriet Jacobs, that having children at the one moment could be the moment of the greatest personhood of a slave, right? The sort of experience of parenthood, of power, of, you know, of, I was going to say control, but, you know, but of power, of, you know, dependence, of care. And at the other hand, of course, in having children, they were doing exactly what their slave masters wanted them to do because those children became part of the capital assets of the masters. And this doubleness, this constant doubleness of meaning, that it was both a deliverance from and literally the reproduction of slavery, um, would haunt family relations or show us the capacity, the, the limits of it. At the same time, we see a final form of a type of resistance through association. Through these associations that are probably more what we think of when we think of the notion of community. And we tend to think of communities as made, not born, and made through space. This was a big part of how slaves began to build up not just ten groups, not just churches, but also a sense of, you know, to put it in sort of modern terms of we're all in this together. This seems obvious to us, but when you look at other cultures, that even cultures like Brazil that had massive slave uprisings, that they often, Brazil had a massive slave uprising of mostly Muslim slaves who rose up without branching out into, you know, without making connections or seeing an association between them and other four and other slaves of Brazil at the same time. And so the process, it reminds us that even resistance can be expressed in all kinds of different ways. And that what happened in these efforts to make associations is what Friday Jones, a slave minister, would write later, was the process of teaching each other to love each other. Um, which is, I think, an interesting way of putting it. Because if we assume, looking back, well, of course slaves took care of each other because who else was going to do it? It also reminds us of the danger of it. So where, how could they build up associations? One way is by helping runaways. But if you're helping a runaway, then you're exposing yourself by communicating, by you know, setting times for meetings, by talking about what they heard from the master. But at every moment, there was this awareness that by reaching out, they were also exposing themselves. And there are many, many examples of slaves being turned in for talking about something, for doing something, for saying something they shouldn't have, for helping to run away, for you know, taking some privilege they shouldn't have. And this complex formation of how do you learn to trust people whom you only know slightly or only know a little bit. That this dangerous lesson of how do you build up the sense of trust in community and how do you make it one way is that it's made through these actual places and practices. Where do they go? And so just to give you a sense of how this works, is a sense of what is the breakdown of our image of what plantations were like. That this picture of Monticello, some of the particular landscape has changed over time, but gives you a sense of how powerful the woods are. One estimate is something like 80 to 90% of southern land had been was these forms of former plantations and farms that had been overgrown, or swamps. And so when we think of the world of the slaves, on the one hand, we can think of it largely as through work, which clearly is at the center of slavery. On another hand, we can think of it through this community of cabins, of these worlds of slave cabins and slave neighborhoods set up behind, through chain gangs, through these meetings and parties, 
And yet, on the other hand, we can think of it as what takes place in the woods. What is it that's possible to be made in between plantations? And what is it that it allows them to assert communities that go beyond their individual family, their individual church, their individual plantation? And so these meetups in the woods have a spatial meaning, too. It means a sort of claiming of space and a claiming that if the owners say you belong to the Robinsons or the Johnsons, that you're also to build up your own world in between and these worlds could be for parties, they could be for pleasure, they could be for religious events, they could be for funerals, like you talked about. Um, they could also be for running away. While an increasingly large number of slaves ran to the north, another thing that we don't take into account is that a large number of slaves who ran away didn't actually go to the north. They hid out. Why? Because they had these families, these communities. They didn't want, they didn't want to be slaves, but they didn't want to be apart from their families or communities either. So... At these, in these, what happened in these events? Well, people talked. They talked about politics. They talked about family. They talked about who had been with. They built up the sense of shared experience. It could be a shared experience of pain, a shared experience of pleasure. But then allowed them to say, what is it that slavery is and what is it that we have in common? At times, these forms of talking could erupt into large-scale rebellion, large-scale resistance. And these could be forms of resistance that went into unusual levels in an American context. And twice, two major examples of armed uprisings, most famously Nat Turner, but many other examples of gossip and whisper, of ideas of plans or talk about uprisings, plans or talk about freedom that would have meaning. At the same time, this notion that slaves were building up their own world posed problems for masters. So it not only allowed them, slaves, to recreate some notion of personhood for themselves, but it also changed the ways that masters behaved. That slavery became increasingly, over time, a system of supervision, surveillance, policing. That much of early American policing actually grows out of the slave patrols, including American terminology of policing, the beats, the patrols, grow out of a system set up in the South to make sure that slaves didn't do exactly this that they stayed in their cabin, and to make sure that they didn't cross into this yonder world of the woods, whether for romance, parties, religion, whatever. And so we see this enormous setup of a police state within the South, what scholar John Will Franklin called the South is an armed society, an armed camp, a militant society, because it took more than just a master saying you can't do it to keep people from doing it. And so this enormous police state that gets set up on the South to keep people at home, not just so they don't run away to the North, but also so that they don't make these connections to each other. And so there we get an irony of the effect of the slaves, that the more of the slave owners, the more the slave owners work to say, you can't, we get the more that slaves say, it must mean something. In other words, this doubleness that goes on. That says, yes, we can. This doubleness that goes on. That says, if they don't want us to do this, then it must be because somehow it's really having an effect. It's really striking at something central and core. And so this doubleness would also take place on the other side. The harder that slave owners work to keep slaves from coming together, the more that slaves in this classic inversion, where they would hear what their masters wanted and assume that the opposite must be true, gets played out so that it gets more and more important. And we see this in something like Louisa Davis, a woman who lived in Winsboro, South Carolina. And she was asked about the patrols and her husband coming to see her and the ways that it affected it. 
And she said, did he come to see me? She said, don't you think I was a good-looking woman? Didn't he want to see me more than the twice a week his owner would let, would let him? Wouldn't he risk it without the pass? Of course he did. They came over and ran him many a time, and every time they did, he would come find his way back. But in this effort to deny meaning, created this sort of double way in which slaves inscribed the meaning in the, in the ways that they did what they knew that their owners did not want them to do. Now this notion of how, do we, of how in the end do we make sense of all of these sort of conflicting impulses, these sort of dynamic, complicated relationship between what slave owners wanted and the world that slaves lived in, uh, is something that continues to sort of pose this problem that I started with, which is the impossibility of fully imagining or easily understanding slavery, or turning slavery into something that we can simply say it's ABC. On the other hand, it also closes these possibilities, which is the very way that slaves were able to make meaning, and yet also to make meaning within a world not of their own making. It's something that scholars have used to talk about all kinds of different ways in which this is true, that even if none of us are slaves, that all of us are brought into a world of which the media, you know, which is determined not solely by us. And yet there's sort of complex ways in which people make meaning in a world not of their own making. We also see ways that it proves to us that even as why it is that the events of the Civil War, which I know you'll talk about later um, in the year, transpired the way it did. Why it is that Union officers, as they came into the South, said immediately, even before the Union had said it was for emancipation, that slaves believed that they were there to emancipate them, even before the North knew that they were there for that reason. And that in believing it, as you know, you'll talk about later in the year, they made it so. And that part of it is because of these systems of meaning that have been established, not as naturally occurring events, but been established over decades during slavery. There are also ways in which it had meaning because of the ways that it helped to cause the Civil War. That this paranoia that it bred among Southern slave owners, that if there were only a couple times in American history where there were large-scale slave uprisings, there were hundreds, even thousands of times where slave owners thought they were in the midst of an uprising. And maybe they were right some of the time and caught it before it happened, and some of the time it seems like they invented it solely out of their own nightmares. Their fear of it structured it so much that it built a Southern society that was increasingly not only militant, but I, in some ways, on the verge of a on the verge of a breakdown. There's a sense of constantly being feeling themselves under attack, even when they weren't, and that would help to propel the South out of out of the Union, in part because of this fear of what the slave owners were doing. So, in the end, and there are many other ways in which we can talk about the effects of it. But to make sure that we have time to get to um, you know, the reading that that I brought and to your ideas about what it tells us about slaves, um, but. And to wrap up quickly, that in the end we come back to this notion that slavery is impossible to sum up. It's impossible to fully tell the history of slavery. And yet the process of getting into it leads us into this incredibly rich and fascinating vein of material, pictures of life, um, that even as we walk through the things I've said here, and the readings we'll talk about in a minute, that we face a society in which people have significant limits and also find moments of partial freedom with it. And that even if with humility and a consciousness of the fact that we'll never be able to get it fully, it's worth the doing, in part because 
the, because of the richness and the sort of interest and the beauty of what's there, and in part because of the ways that it makes us sort of come back to this thing that it seems to me is at the heart of the social history project, which is how is it that people carve out moments of power, moments of individual leverage within worlds that are not of their own making. 